we'll only make it through a few chapters tonight, but looking at uh, Numbers 5 through 8 today, I titled this, The Lord Bless You, because we have the ironic blessing given to us in this passage that we'll be looking at tonight. I want to go ahead and open us in prayer and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. So, Father, we thank you for this night you've given us an opportunity to look here in the fourth book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, known to us, Lord, as the books of Moses, that really, talking from creation to the early history of the people of Israel from Abraham down to Joseph, and now looking at the children of Israel as they are in the wilderness and preparing to move again and to journey toward the promised land. So, Father, I pray that we can find life lessons contained within these chapters. Even tonight, Lord, in the difficulty of the first several chapters of Numbers has really a preparation for Israel to move. So sometimes it's hard to glean things for our life today out of these chapters. But, Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us to do so. And we do and are thankful, Lord, that contained within the chapters that we're looking at tonight, we have the Arianic blessing and a blessing, Lord, to this day that we can pray and pray over one another in our lives. So, Lord, we already have fruit from this chapter, just knowing that we're going to look at this in a little more detail this evening. So we ask, Lord, you be with us, be with those who are watching via video or through the radio and bless our time tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Numbers chapter 5, beginning in chapter 5 tonight. I called this God in the camp, and they're getting ready to move, uh, begin to travel toward the promised land. They've been camped out for about a year and one month as we come into Numbers chapter 1. They're at Mount Sinai. They remained there, built the tabernacle, prepared to move the people. They're still there. They're getting ready to move. But there's some things that God wanted to do before they actually made a move. Their Lord forming them into a nation, into a people, and organizing the camp itself. But here in chapter 5, dealing with the issues of uncleanness, sin, unfaithfulness, jealousy, redemption, and judgment teaching us that these things should be dealt with because as believers, the Holy Spirit of God is in our midst. Or put more rightly, the Spirit of God being in our hearts as believers in Jesus Christ. For Israel, God would say that these things have to be dealt with because I'm in the midst of your camp. So we find the Lord in verses 1 through 4 saying to put out outside the camp, all uncleanness. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, or whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp. And the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Now, 
the separating ourselves from the uncleanness of the world, here the uncleanness of the camp, uh, the things that God mentioned here as far as uncleanness is not sin, uh, not necessarily sin. We have leprosy and some kind of bodily discharge, some kind of uh, wound or oozing of the sore, someone who has touched a dead body or a corpse. Not sin, but it made them ceremonially unclean, and they had to separate themselves for a set period of time. And especially the touching of a dead body, perhaps because death came as a result of sin. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6, 17 through 18, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. So not because of sin here in these opening verses, but they had been made unclean, become defiled in some fashion. And those who were unclean had to go outside of the camp for the set period of time if it was leprosy until the leprosy was gone. But the reason being is that God was in the midst of their camp. And the holy God could not be. He desired. I almost said the holy God could not be among unholy people. Of course he can because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. God was amid their camp, but he set guidelines and rules that they would understand the importance of trying to be ceremonially clean in the presence of God. He speaks about confession, restitution, and atonement in verses 5 through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord... And that person is guilty. So now we're looking at sin. Verse 7, He shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of the atonement which, with which atonement is made for him, every offering of all holy things of the children of Israel, which they shall bring to the priest, shall be his, and every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives, the priest shall be his. So Moses here now dealing with a pathway for men and women in the nation of Israel. They've committed a sin, they've wronged, Kind of in the context of this passage, they have wronged someone. And with the offering of the sacrifice, there was also the restitution that had to be made, whatever that was. I hit your car when I was backing out of my driveway and I caused a thousand dollars damage. I would not only have to give you the money to fix the car, but plus one fifth, 20 percent on top of it just for the pain of it, I guess, to make restitution. Now, if the individual had no family or no person where that restitution could be made, restitution was still had to be made. It came to the Lord, and it was presented at the temple. 
and then it was given to the priest. So they couldn't get out of the restitution being made, even if there was no person to make restitution to. Then the Lord said, bring it to me. Bring it to the tabernacle, and I'll give it to the priest. When we sin, whether against God or another person, for all sin is against God, we are to confess that sin. And the Word of God tells us in 1 John 1, 9 that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, sometimes we must make restitution to the person that we have sinned against. Matthew 5:24. this reminded me of this when Jesus said, when you have a gift and you bring it to the temple and you remember that there, someone has some wrong against you, this gives it in the sense to me that I have injured someone and I am reminded of that when I'm bringing my offering to the temple. Then Matthew 5:24, the Lord said, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So the Lord says, just stop right there. Set your gift down. Go deal with the individual. Make reconciliation. Then come and give your offering. Now, if restitution is not possible, then in this situation for Israel, the restitution would come to the tabernacle and then be given to the priest. So the restitution would come to the Lord and then the Lord gave it to the priest. So here we have this odd passage. It's pretty long in Numbers chapters 5, 11 through 31 in dealing with the test of an unfaithful wife. And so we're going to read through it. I'll make some commentary on it and uh, be glad that we don't have to go through this process today. But this is what the Lord gave for Israel. And the Lord spoke, verses 11 through 15, of a jealous husband. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray, behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, she's either innocent or guilty, but he's still jealous. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring an offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephod of barley meal, about two quarts. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. That was pretty common for the grain offering in the book of Leviticus. But here he was not to do that because it is a grain offering of jealousy and offering for remembering for bringing iniquity to remembrance. So if a man suspected his wife of being unfaithful to him, he noticed that there was some sudden great mood swing in her and suddenly she seems to be very pleased and happy when that wasn't her normal character. Something's going on that causes him to have this spirit of jealousy. Then there was a way that 
This could be brought to the priests at the temple where God made a way for truth to be revealed and the woman to be judged. In the case of the husband becoming jealous toward his wife, believing that she had committed adultery, whether she was innocent or not, without any eyewitnesses, the issue was to be dealt with before the priest at the tabernacle of the Lord. If there were eyewitnesses, this would not even be an issue because Leviticus 20.10 says, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. They already had a law dealing with adultery. And so this is a, a law given for a husband's jealousy to discover whether his wife was faithful or not. So 16 through 22, the woman would say an oath before the Lord. So now she's pledging before the Lord. And the priest shall bring her near, set her before the Lord. The priest shall take the holy water and the earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand before, shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man has laid with you, and if you not have gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. Verse 20, but if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under an oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, and then the Lord shall make the thigh rot and your belly swell, and may this water cause a curse go to into your stomach, make your bed, belly swell and your thigh rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. So she's committing herself to these words of the priests, allowing herself to be put under a curse before the Lord God Almighty through this ritual. She is swearing her innocence before the Lord. Or if she didn't want to go through that and she was guilty, she might just on the spot confess. Say, I'm not going there. I don't want a rotten thigh and a swollen tummy. So she just might come out with it and say, all right, I'm guilty. And that would be another issue entirely. 23 through 28. And then the priest shall write these curses in a book and scrape them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings a curse shall enter her and become bitter. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as it, its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the water, the woman drink the water. And when she has made, he has made her drink the water, and it shall be that she has defiled herself, have becoming unfaithful toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her, become bitter, her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman is not defiled herself, is clean, then she shall be free and conceive 
children, may conceive children. So it could be that even uh, just that last line of throwing childbearing in there, as we know that like with David and Bathsheba, committing adultery can get the adulteress pregnant. But here there's that she's free to conceive children then from her husband, of course. So the holy water contained the dust from the floor of the tabernacle with the lettering, scraping off the letters that were written on the paper of the curse. And if she was innocent, nothing would happen. If she was guilty, according to the word of God, her stomach would swell, her thigh would rot. So this is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, and when the spirit of jealousy comes upon the man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. So the law of the spirit of jealousy brought either redemption or condemnation to the woman. And I might say, if the woman was found innocent, trouble would soon descend upon that jealous husband. It reminded me of the saying that goes properly like this. Heaven has no rage like love turned hate. Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turn, nor hell like fury. (laughs) I'm reading it so poorly. Let me try it again. Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turn, nor hell of fury like a woman scorned. So usually quoted, hell has no fury like a woman scorned. So I'm glad that we don't have this process today. But in some ways, you know, I've sat, Lily and I've sat in situations with couples before, been going through marital problems, and uh, we've dealt with these issues, but without scraping any dust off the floor or having water from the water cooler or um, writing words and scraping them off. We haven't went that far, but we have prayed with people that I'm glad we don't have to go through such rituals today, but I'm more so glad in Galatians 3.13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, that we have been redeemed. So number six begins with the Nazarite vow. And we find that a Nazarite was a man or a woman who took a vow to separate themselves unto the Lord for a specific time. The name Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, and it means to separate or to consecrate. And contained with the Nazarite vow were three distinct characteristics that had to be kept until the vow was completed. We'll look at those three distinct characteristics as we go through Numbers chapter 6. In the Bible, there are three lifelong Nazarites mentioned Uh, Two in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. So two in the Old Testament. I'm going to ask you guys. I know you guys know one of them, but let's see if you have both of them. Two from the Old Testament. Shout them out for me. Nazarites, lifelong Nazarites. Samson, Samuel. You got them both. Very good. 
And the New Testament? Forerunner of Christ? (laughs) John the Baptist. Forerunner of Christ, yes. So three lifelong Nazarites in the Bible, two from the Old Testament. You guys got those. I thought for sure you'd get John the Baptist in the New Testament. Many believe that Jesus was also a Nazarite, but we go through here. We don't know anything about Jesus's hair, but um, we do know that he did not fulfill the law of the Nazarite just by the three things, except for the hair. So two of the three, he definitely blew. And the first one, so he couldn't have been a Nazarite. Don't touch wine or grapes, verses one through four. So the three characteristics of the Nazarite, the first one being don't cut, touch anything of the vine. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, said, speak to the children of Israel, say to them, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take a vow of the Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine or vinegar from a similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor shall he eat grapes or raisins. In the days of his separation, all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by grapevines from seed to skin. So first of all, no grape products whatsoever. Not grapes, no raisins, no grapeseed oil for cooking, no grape skins. I don't know what you do with the skins. No grape juice or wine. Samson, a lifelong Nazarite, while his mother was pregnant with him, she was not allowed to eat or drink anything from the vine while she was pregnant. According to Judges 13, 13 and 14, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Samson's father, Samson's mother is never named for us, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So it actually extended to mom while she was carrying Samson in the womb. Very interesting in the day and age that we live in with the Democratic Party and our government trying to make abortion such a great issue But God saw, even before the forming of the child in the womb, that no wine. He's got to be a Nazarite. And he can't have wine. He'll blow it. But he's not supposed to have it. You can't have it. Why? Because what's in mom goes in the baby, right? We know that today. And that's why even today, women get pregnant. And they, if they're accustomed to drinking, many of them, will stop if they're accustomed to doing drugs. They'll stop while they're pregnant because they don't want to harm their child. At least that's the hope. Don't cut your hair. Number five, all the days of the vow, the separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he has separated himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. So second, no razor shall touch the head during the vow. Some 
believe that the Hebrew word here, Nazir, refers to the diadem, kind of saying that the Nazarite's crown was his or her, her hair. And we know this as far as the woman in 1 Corinthians 11:15, if the woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair has been given to her for a covering. So they connect the Nazarite vow with the crown. It probably wouldn't get that long except for uh, Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist. Can't imagine the dreads that they would have had. But for a normal Nazarite, according to Jewish tradition, it would be for either 30, 60, or 90 days. So you're not going to get a lot of hair growth out of that. But during that time, you were not to cut your hair. And don't come in contact with the dead. And this is a longer explanation of this, verses 6 through 12. And it plays in with the hair again if they come in contact. And so it goes into a longer explanation of this. All the days that he separated himself unto the Lord, shall he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. So the hair is referring back to the hair. His separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation shall be holy to the Lord. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves, two young pigeons, two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering, and make atonement for him because he has sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day, shave his head that same day, he shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb of the first year of his trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So if he's going for a 90 day Nazarite vow and at day 89, he's standing in line at the grocery store and someone drops dead and he catches him or her, he has to start all over again has to take seven days for the uncleanness process of contact with the dead and then present his offerings to the Lord, shave his head, begin the Nazarite vow all over again. So the touching of the dead, perhaps because sin came as a result, death came as a result of sin when Adam and Eve, their first sin in the garden, and then contact with the dead would cause them to become Unclean, Numbers 19.11, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. So that's why in his process, he had to offer the offering seven days later. He's at day 89. He had a 90-day vow. He touches someone who died on day 89. He had to wait seven days, and then he could come and do the offerings and start all over for another 90 days or three months. 
The Apostle Paul apparently took one of these Nazarite vows from Acts 18, 18 and Acts 21, 23 through 26. On his last missionary journey, he had a great desire to get back to Jerusalem and to present a gift to the children, to the church there in Jerusalem, but also because he had put himself under a vow. And many believe that he had made a Nazarite vow and he wanted to get to the temple that he could offer the sacrifices. Not that he would offer a sacrifice for sin, for Christ has already forgiven him for the sins through the Jesus' death on the cross. But there would still be the customs that would be followed, the shaving of the head there before the temple of the Lord. And although, as I said earlier, some believe that Christ was a Nazarite, Matthew 2.23, many get that because he shall be called a Nazarene, but that is connected to the city that he grew up with, not whether he had long hair, and we know that he drank wine, we know that he touched the dead. Usually when he touched the dead, they didn't remain dead any longer, but we know that he couldn't have been a Nazarite and to wholly keep the law because of the hair we do not know, but we do know that he touched those who were dead. We do know that he drank wine. So the completion of the vow, verses 13 through 21. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of the separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb. In its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb. In its first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram. Without blemish as a peace offering, quite expensive. A basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil and their grain offering and their drink offerings. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his, off, offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace, of a peace offering to the Lord. And the basket of unleavened bread, the priest shall also offer its grain offering as with its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his head, shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, shall take the hair from his consecrated hair and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shorter, shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake of the basket, one unleavened wafer, and put them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And then the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the breast and the wave offering, the thigh and the heave offering. And the Nazarite may drink wine. So now the vow is over. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord, the offering for his separation, because, and besides that, whatever else is in his hand, he is able to provide according to the vow that he takes. So he must do according to the law of separation. So for whatever reason, maybe he's sick, maybe somebody in the family was sick. And uh, they were near death and someone made a pledge to the Lord. There could be numerous reasons why someone might take a Nazarite vow. But when it was completed, it was completed at the temple with offerings offered to the Lord. 
and the shaving of the head once again. As that hair was then mingled with the altar, the hair of consecration, that crown of the Nazarite. So the Arianic blessing, 22 through 27. And this is what Aaron was to speak to the children of Israel. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. So all the priests were to give this blessing. This is the way that you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So within the blessing, we find that the name of the Lord is repeated three times in this blessing. It could be one of the Old Testament clues of the triunity of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But in the original Hebrew, it would simply say Yahweh, 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 three times the Lord, Yahweh. So Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So it's easily divided into six parts. And the first is that of the Lord blessing Israel. A blessing that God originally gave to Adam when he called him to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. To have dominion over God's creation is found in Genesis 2.28. God gave Noah a lesser blessing when he said in Genesis 9.1 to Noah, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. God did not tell Noah to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. So a lesser blessing, but still a blessing. And then the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants that God made with Israel. And for Christians, this blessing is a blessing of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, I love it. I've just read through the book of Ruth recently. And uh, I always loved Boaz, who would become Ruth's husband toward the end of the book. When he, a man who owned uh, grain fields and went out to the harvesters and his greetings that he came with. It's the only time that we find an individual greeting others like this in the Bible. But Boaz came from Bethlehem, went to the reapers and said, the Lord be with you. And they responded, the Lord bless you. That's a great way to greet one another. God be with you. And Jesus be with you. The second, asking that the Lord keep you. The word keep is a Hebrew word that means to hedge about with thorns, to watch, to guard. It was the accusation that Satan said before God concerning Job. Just let me at him. You've hedged around him. You keep this guy. Let me get at him. Take down that wall of protection. And so this is referring to the Lord keeping hedge about with thorns. And the psalmist in 127, 4 and 5, Behold, he who keeps Israel neither shall slumber or sleep. And the Lord is your keeper. And the Lord is the shade at your right hand. The Lord is your keeper. Third, the Lord make his face shine upon you. And this is an indication of divine approval or favor. God's favor be with you. 
And the psalmist again in Psalm 80, verse 7 says, Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. God's favor. All we need is the Lord's favor upon us. And we do have the Lord's favor because He has been gracious to us. The fourth part of this blessing, the Lord be gracious to you. It properly means to bend or to stoop in kindness to an inferior, so someone of greater stature, bending or stooping down in kindness to someone of lower stature, and that is the Lord be gracious to us. And it's part of the Lord's name. A declaration of his name is found in Exodus 33. But here, a portion of that, he says in verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God being gracious is part of his nature. Fifth in the blessing, similar to the third, which says the Lord's face shine upon you. In the fifth, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That word for countenance can mean face in the Hebrew, but it may speak of God's favor toward the children of Israel. Without such favor, they would cease to be a people. And so, Lord, lift up your countenance upon us. The psalmist David picked this up in Psalm 4, 6, saying, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. That was the cry of David. And finally, the Lord give you peace. And the Hebrew word for shalom, meaning health or security or tranquility or peace. The Lord give you peace. And Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. For those who have their mind stayed on God, they look to Jesus, they find that peace of Jesus Christ. It's a promise of Jesus as well. Today the peace of God can come through faith in Jesus Christ where Jesus said in John 14.27, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then that was the blessing that the priests were to give over the children of Israel to lift up their hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then God explains By doing this, verse 27, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. The priest shall put my name on the children of Israel. So my name, my fame, in the Hebrew it can mean the fame, that which identifies a person or anything. And in this case, God is saying that Israel will be identified as belonging to me. They are to reflect my fame, my reputation, my glory. Deuteronomy 28.10, Moses would say, Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. So the Arianic blessing begins with the priest putting a blessing of God upon the people and ends 
with God promising to bless the people. And in both cases, the Lord bless you and God saying, I will bless you. It is that Hebrew word that signifies the act of a superior bending down to an inferior and showing compassion. And so let it be, Lord, that you would show compassion upon us, that the blessings of the Lord would be upon us. As the psalmist said in Psalm 115, 12 and 13, the Lord has been mindful of us and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Or if you want to get a blessing from the New Testament, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having been predestined, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you peace. Chapter 7, we have the second longest chapter in the Bible. And it is the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel who have already been given to us by name in chapter 1. So we've already been introduced to the 12 leaders. They bring a gift of dedication for the tabernacle over a 12-day period. And so we're not going to read everything, but we're going to get into the context of it by opening up the first several verses In verses 1 through 9, it says, Now it came to pass, so Numbers chapter 7, Now it came to pass, when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he anointed it and consecrated it, and all of its furnishings, and the altar, and all of its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel and the heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes over those who were numbered, made an offering, and they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and for each one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle. And the Lord spoke to Moses in verse five, accept these from them that they may be used doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites, two carts And four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merai, according to their service, under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things, which they carried on their shoulders. So we looked at the three divisions of the Levites and their service 
at the tabernacle of the Lord last week in our study. But just a quick reminder, the two carts and four oxen to the sons of Gershon were to be used for the material of the tents that formed the tabernacle and the material that formed the outer court of the tabernacle as they would carry these on the carts, transport them on the carts. The four carts and eight oxen were given to the sons of Mary in their service because they had all the framework, all that the tents were attached to. They had all the framework, which certainly would be fairly heavy. And so they had four carts, eight oxen, to help them with that service. But the sons of Kohath, because they transported the holy things and the holy furnishings of the tabernacle itself, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the table of showbread, the menorah, the um, golden altar, and the altar of incense that was in the holy place of the tabernacle. And we went through this list last week. They didn't mention the bronze altar, the levir that was outside of the tabernacle. No doubt these were also um, dealt with and carried by perhaps the sons of Kohath. It did not speak of them there. Maybe it says it somewhere else in scripture, but they were to carry these on their shoulders. They were not to use a cart. And this was something that David learned the hard way in Second Samuel chapter 6. All this we looked at last week. So each of the leaders in 10 through 83, we have uh, divisions of the 12 leaders coming. And the only difference is a name change and what tribes they're from. And then all the gifts are the same that they give. So 10 and 11, now all the leaders offered a dedication offering of the altar when it was anointed. For the leaders offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. And so the leaders have already been named to us in Numbers chapter 1, totally verses 4 through 16. And they're all the same leaders. And I checked it out today. They're all the same leaders. But here in Numbers chapter 7, I had to remember what chapter we're in. Numbers chapter 7, they're presented in a different order. And so they begin with Nashon, the head of the tribe of Judah, would present his gift on the first day. And then Nathaniel on the second day, the head of the tribe of Ishishar would present his gift. And on the third day, Eliab of Zubalin would present his gift. These first three offerings came from the tribes that were to camp immediately east of the tabernacle. So I discovered today as I looked at this that in the first chapter, they're listed out with um, Reuben first, the eldest of Jacob and Simeon and Judah and Issachar, and they go through the list that way. But here they're listed out from where the divisions camped around the tabernacle. So the first three groupings with Judah as their head, and the first one to present the gift, camping on the east side, 
the king's side of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle always had the entranceway facing the east, and the king would have his private entrance. Even though there is no king over Israel at this time except God, no earthly king, that earthly line would come from Judah eventually, and God already set him up in his position. So the fourth day, Eliezer from the tribe of Reuben presented his gift. On the fifth day, Shemuel of Simeon on the sixth day, Eliasaph of Gad. And these were the ones who camped on the south side of the tabernacle with Reuben as their head. On the seventh day, Elishama of Ephraim gave his offering. Then on the eighth day, Gamaliel of Manasseh. So remember in the blessing, Manasseh was the elder son of Joseph. But when Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, he did the old switcheroo and put his right hand on Ephraim's head and said, he will be the greater, the double blessing. He's listed first. He's the head of those who had camped on the west side of the tabernacle and then grouped with them. So we have Ephraim and Manasseh on the eighth day and then Abidan, the leader over at Benjamin, so Joseph's brother, on the ninth day. And so they're on the west side of the tabernacle. And then finally, on the north of the tabernacle, we have Ahizar and the tribe of Dan. Let's see, I think I skipped one. On the tenth day, yes, Ahizar from the tribe of Dan on the tenth day. Pegalel on the tribe of Asher on the eleventh day. And Ahira of Naphtali on the twelfth day, and they were on the north side of the tabernacle. So they presented their gifts from the positioning of how the Lord had them divided in the camp, how they camped around Israel. Now we could read through all these verses, but it's very repetitive. Basically, it tells you this. The gifts they presented, each one on their own day, and they all presented the same gifts. One silver platter and bowl filled with fine flour, as with oil, as the grain offering, and one gold pan full of incense. They also brought one young bull, one ram, one lamb in its first year as a burnt offering. Each brought one kid goat as a sin offering, two oxen and five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in the first year as peace offerings. And so the totals of all these offerings, it tells us the totals. We begin in verse 85, each silver platter weighed 130 shekels, each bowl 70 shekels, and of the silver vessels weighed 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Of the 12 gold pans full of incense weighed 10 shekels apiece according to the shekel of the tabernacle, and the gold pans weighing 120 shekels. And of the animals there were 12 young bulls, 12 rams, 12 lambs as burnt offerings. 12 kid goats as sin offerings, 24 bulls, 60 rams, 60 male goats, 60 male lambs in the first year as peace offerings. So quiet an offering over a 12-day period. So God moved these leaders in a special way to provide all these animals and these gifts for the dedication of the tabernacle. And it caused me to think about the difference between our tithes and our offerings. I believe that a tithe is a tenth of our income, a tenth of something that we have 
acquired through the grace of God in this life. We give back to the Lord one-tenth of whatever we receive. But sometimes he calls us to give more, to go beyond a normal offering. And there are special seasons in life when we may be challenged to go beyond the tithe and, and to give in this way. And so the idea is that we all... All things come from the Lord, and he desires us to be good stewards of those things which he has given us. Sometimes he may call us to give special offerings to the Lord, as these leaders gave to the Lord. Verse 89, so when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, speak with Yahweh, he heard the voice of the one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony, from between the two cherubim, thus he spoke to him. So here we find that Moses went into the Holy of Holies. So Moses had this special relationship with God, as we know. He was a friend of God. He stood in the presence of God. Um, But he was not a priest of God. Aaron was the priest, the high priest. But as long as Moses lived, he had this special circumstance where he could enter in to the tabernacle of the Lord. And the Lord would speak to him. With Aaron, God would speak. With the king wanted to have information. It was the um and the thummim that the priest wore. Whatever this device was, they could determine the will of God. But with Moses, the Lord spoke to him. He heard the voice of God speaking to him above the mercy seat. That was there on the Ark of the Testimony. Lamentations 22 through 23 says, Though the Lord's mercy, we are not consumed, because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so it reminds us that apart from the mercy of God, without the covering of Jesus Christ, we would have no relationship with God. No direct fellowship with God, but God has blessed us in this way that we should have fellowship with him. So I'll give you grace and we'll end it in three chapters, not four. And so, Father, we want to just stop and pray and ask, Lord, for those who perhaps, Lord, just right now, they're ready to cry out to you in life-saving faith. And so, Lord, for those who may have such a heart's cry, May they pray such a prayer to you tonight. Lord, please forgive me, for I have sinned and fall short of your glory. Father, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I also acknowledge that your Son, Jesus Christ, came, died upon a cross to pay the price of my sin. I acknowledge, Father God, that our Savior, Jesus not only died, he was buried, he rose again. Now he offers salvation to whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And tonight, Lord Jesus, I call upon your name that I might be saved. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope somebody on the radio, that was for you tonight. And if you prayed that prayer, please email us at cclv at comcast.net. We would love to be in contact with you. CCLV at comcast.net. Let's stand together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless.